Uh, as you can see, we're starting a new series this morning that will carry us uh, through the fall season. And it's a series based on something known as the Apostles' Creed. And uh, if you've been around uh, the Christian faith for any number of years, it's probably something that you've been exposed to at various times. For some of you, depending on your background, it was something that was a huge part of your faith formation and church experience. And for others, it's something that we're still just getting acquainted with. Um, what I would say is that for me personally, the creed wasn't a significant part of my upbringing in the faith, uh, even though I knew it was out there and was somewhat familiar with it. But over the last several years in the journey that God's had me on in terms of my own formation and development, uh, this creed has become incredibly meaningful to me and incredibly helpful in uh, the way that I think about God, the way that I relate to God, the way that I speak uh, to and about God, and ultimately the life that I live with and for God. Um, I've found this creed to be an incredible gift of grace, and um, it's something that's been passed down to us for generations, and uh, by, uh, by grace, we hope that it will continue to be passed through future generations of the church. And so what we're going to do basically is week by week from now uh, up until Advent through November, the next 12 weeks or so, we're going to walk through the creed one line at a time. Um, we're still going to base our messages in the anchoring truths of Scripture, uh, which have inspired the creed. And the hope is that by the end of this season, we all will be um, not just familiar with it, but it will have sunk deep uh, into our souls. And it will be a helpful um, and even essential part of the way that we think about who we are in Christ and what God has given us to do uh, in this world. And so that's the plan this morning. I'm basically just going to give you an introduction, a little bit of a historical background to the creed, how it came about, the early church's use and experience of it, and then wrestle a little bit with some of the questions of its relevance uh, for our world today. So, sound good? All right, love it. it. The words are on your bulletin. If you're not familiar with it, um, then you, you'll have that with you and uh, can be a point of reference. But um, let's start with a little bit of history. And I'm going to start by giving credit to an Australian theologian by the name of Ben Myers. He's one of my favorite contemporary theologians. And his thinking and writing on the Apostles' Creed and on the uh, importance of understanding and connecting to the early historical church have been incredibly helpful. And so I have, have borrowed heavily from him in the preparation for this series. I know a lot of you don't read a lot of Australian theology, but just in case you do, then uh, I'm just owning up to it, that he's been a, a, an incredible help. So imagine this with me. Uh, the year is 200 AD, and there's a group of new believers, new Christ followers, that have stayed up all night, praying, worshiping, studying the scripture, and they're preparing for the biggest moment of their lives. The next day is Easter Sunday, and these early Christians have been anticipating the day of their baptism. And so on Easter morning, when the rooster crows at dawn, this group of new believers are led down to this pool of flowing water. And here's where it gets crazy. They completely undress. The women let down their hair and take off their jewelry. Each of these new believers renounces Satan and is anointed head to toe with oil representing the Holy Spirit. And then they're led naked down into the waters. 
And so as each one comes, they are asked three questions. The first question is, do you believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? And they reply, I believe. And then they're plunged under the water and brought back up. And then they're, answer, then they're asked a second question. Do you believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead on the third day and rose again, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the person again confesses, I believe. And they're dunked under the water a second time. And then a third question, do you believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting? And again, and for a final time, they confess, I believe, they're dunked under the water and raised uh, back up out. Then they are led out of the water, still naked, born again. Their second birth, like their first, totally dependent, bringing nothing with themselves but their life. And then they're clothed, blessed, and led into the assembly of believers where they share their first Eucharist or Lord's table for the first time, and then they are blessed and sent on their way out to go do good works and to grow in their faith. And so this morning we are introducing the practice of naked baptism. <laughs> Just kidding, we're not gonna go there. Um, this is what baptism looked like in the early days of the church, within the first couple hundred years after uh, Jesus had come and lived and taught and suffered and died and risen again and ascended and left the Spirit. This was the beginning, this baptismal creed, of what's become known as the Apostles' Creed. So it was originally a baptismal confession or a pledge of allegiance to the God of the gospel who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so there's really three main stanzas to the creed. The first, affirming our faith in the Father, second, in the Son, and third, in the Holy Spirit. What's beautiful is that in the, the section on the Holy Spirit, we, as the church, are included that that is part of our identity in this story. And so this creed really emerged as a response from these early Christians to what Medell just read for us in Matthew chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission. This is after Jesus has risen from the dead and he spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God and he says he's preparing to go back to the place where the Father dwells. He gives them this mission and it's a community with a mission. So it's a co-mission, something we're called to do together and it's to go into the world to proclaim this gospel and to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the doctrine of the Trinity hadn't emerged yet. At the time of the scripture events or even in the early days of the formation of the creed. But you'll notice even in Jesus' language in Matthew chapter 28, he is grammatically incorrect. Because it should read in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he says in the name. Meaning there are three persons in this Godhead. This three-part dance 
of unity and belonging and reciprocal joy and service, but there is one God. And so even before the doctrine of the Trinity was articulated, uh, there is this robust vision that the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God whose Father is Jesus, is an us, operates as a loving relationship. And so for these early Christians, they took this commission Jesus gave them incredibly seriously. And they were devoted to exploring what would it look like to actually organize our faith and discipleship, our, our life as a church around this commission and all the teachings that Jesus includes in it. And so they made a really, really big deal about baptism. And to be baptized truly was the most significant day in your life. As significant as your birth was this uh, rite of second birth, if you will. And so the creed um, wasn't created by some council of old men with big white beards and big funny hats. Sometimes we get that picture when we're talking about the historic church. It wasn't part of some deliberate theological strategy. It was a grassroots confession of faith. In fact, um, tradition holds it that the 12 lines of the Apostles' Creed were penned by one apostle each, that each apostle wrote one line of the creed. Um, we don't know if that's historically accurate, but that is why the apostrophe is on the end of the S instead of the E. It's not the creed of one apostle, but of all the apostles and all of the followers of Jesus that would come after that. And so by the beginning of the second century then, the basic form of this creed could be found wherever the gospel of Jesus had been proclaimed and wherever a church of Christ followers had emerged. We have early, early writings from early uh, church documents that show in various forms the beginning of this creed and how it became such an essential part of faith and worship uh, for early Christians. And so basically in the early church, we'll keep the history going for a minute here, the creed served two functions. Um, the first was educational, and the second was sacramental, to use that word again. So uh, it was essentially a catechism. It was a way for young believers or those that were exploring the Christian faith to get exposed to the basic beliefs uh, of, what, of what the Bible teaches. And so it was spiritual education for new believers. And so in preparing for baptism, new Christians would memorize the creed, impressing it upon their hearts and their minds as a guide for two things. First, for how to interpret the scriptures. So we don't do creed instead of the Bible, but the creed is actually an incredibly helpful lens for us to read the Bible through because it gives us the big story of who God is and what he has done. And so whatever parts of the Bible that we're engaging, Old, New Testament, whatever it is, when we look at it through something like the Apostles' Creed, it clarifies the way that we are meant to read, understand, and ultimately live out the message uh, of the Bible. And so firstly, the Creed was designed and utilized by the early church to train minds in how we think of and relate to God, to turn our hearts towards the God of the Bible. And secondly, it also trained them to see the world that God has made. 
So it trained them to see God and then also to turn their attention towards God's world. And so what you see in the text of the creed is this view of this world, the world that God has created as the domain for his activity. God creates this world, he becomes incarnate in it, and then ultimately through Jesus has this plan to redeem it all back to himself. And so in terms of our theological education, in terms of our training of our minds as followers of Jesus, the creed has always been this incredibly helpful tool for turning our hearts and minds towards God and towards the world that he has made. So there's an educational aspect of it. And so some weeks throughout this series, we'll emphasize that part of it. We'll wrestle with some of the questions that it raises for us. We'll want to root it deeply in scripture and go, uh, where, where do these ideas come from? And we'll find that they are all straight out of the Bible. And then secondly, the early church utilized the creed in a sacramental sense, meaning it wasn't just a preparation or a baptism class, but as the story I shared earlier conveys, it was actually part of the baptism experience. It was a part of a person publicly expressing their commitment to Christ and his church by making this threefold pledge of allegiance that I pledge my allegiance to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the early church believed that these words had power. Not that there's some sort of magical formula or anything like that, but they're words that didn't just say something, they're words that did something. They were words that had power. So, uh, for example, yesterday, Jen and I had the privilege of going and welcoming Wyatt David Hendricks into the world at the hospital with Evan and Lindsay. And there had been a text thread going amongst our staff that day as Evan was giving us updates and announcing his arrival. And one of the questions on the text was, what's his name? And uh, they hadn't quite decided yet or weren't ready to share it yet or whatever. But there was a point yesterday afternoon when Evan pronounced his name is Wyatt David Hendricks. Those words don't just say something, those words do something. That that child now has been imparted an identity by the speaking or announcing of his name. Same thing happens when, you do, when I do a wedding as a pastor or something like that. I now pronounce you husband and wife. Those words have authoritative power. They make something true that wasn't true before. And that's how the early Christians understood this pledge of allegiance to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That as I speak and affirm my faith and my commitment to Christ and his church, that something new uh, is true about me. That I become part of this historic tradition um, and this global cosmic revolution in a way that I hadn't been before. So for those of you that are concerned, I'm not saying baptismal regeneration is what the creed teaches or what I hold to. If you don't know what those words mean, then don't worry about it. But for those of you that have a vocabulary that includes those, that's not what we're talking about. But we are simply exploring how seriously the early Christians took their commitment to pledge allegiance uh, to the God who's revealed in Jesus. So when it comes to us then, uh, 1,700 years later, gathered in Bend, Oregon as, as an expression of Christ's church in the world, um, like I said, I think we would be foolish to turn our back away from something that has been handed down throughout the generations. And I think it's an incredible opportunity for us to join ourselves 
to the historic and global church of Jesus by becoming familiar with this creed and wrestling deeply with it, even engaging some of the questions or the troubling or confusing parts of it. And so the journey for us is that over the next several, several weeks, several months, that we would be able to proclaim this together. And the first word of the creed, in some ways, is the most important in terms of its function and role. The first word is I. I believe. Now, who's the I? Typically, you would think it has to do with whoever the original author was, and of course, there is something to that. But I actually think that those who frame this creed and have passed it down to us intentionally are in calling us to expand our definition of who I refers to. So back to the wedding analogy. Uh, over the last 20 years, I've done uh, probably 150 weddings, um, probably about 10 funerals. And um, as a pastor, those are some of the most um, significant moments where you get to walk with people um, through these huge life stage transitions, new identities, and new realities. And so as I've uh, done so many weddings, I've kind of taken really seriously what it is that's said and done during the ceremony as I kind of preside over it with the, uh, the bride and the groom. And so um, if you've ever heard me do a wedding, the vows, when it comes to the vows, they're always exactly the same. I don't try to get creative and write new vows uh, for each couple, and it's not because I'm lazy. Um, I am lazy, but that's not the reason for this particular issue. And um, I do two sets of vows, one that's kind of a, a declaration of intent and then another that's kind of traditional marriage vows. And they go like this. I would say to the groom, groom, do you take this woman to be your wife? And do you pledge your faithfulness to her in all love and honor, in all duty and service, in all faith and repentance, to live with her and cherish her according to the ordinance of God in the holy covenant of marriage? And the groom would say, I do. And then I would ask the same question uh, of the bride. And then we'd get to these repeat after me vows where I would say, I groom, I groom, take you bride, take you bride, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. Okay? I didn't make these vows up. These are vows that uh, many people have spoken to one another throughout centuries in Christian marriages. And what I've noticed over the last 20 years that I've been in the game is that more and more couples are a little bit resistant to recite, recite these historical vows. And instead, they would rather write their own vows to one another. In most cases, she would rather that they write their own vows to one another, and he goes along with it. And um, this is actually relatively new. For you, you that have been to weddings recently, this is probably something you observe, but it's really just in the last couple decades that as our individualistic society has trained us to value the personal, the unique, uh, and the authentic over the old and the historic and the communal, that somehow we've come to the belief that the truest thing I could say is something I make up myself. 
And so oftentimes, as you have couples expressing their personal vows to each other on the marriage altar, what they're doing is expressing their feelings. How I feel towards you in this particular exciting and romantic moment. And then oftentimes it includes uh, praise or admiration or here's the things that I love about you. Here's why I'm so excited to spend my life with you. Now, all of that's great. And those are the kinds of things we should say to, uh, to the people we're marrying. Um, but here's what's interesting. Just to be a little bit non-romantic. Pastorally, I think the traditional set of vows is way more moving, way more gripping, way more serious. They're statements of commitment. It's not about you or what you're feeling. It's about me deciding that I am going to commit myself to you no matter what. The problem is when the foundation for our relationships and marriage is how you make me feel or what I like about you or what I appreciate about you, well, what happens when those things are no longer true? What if it's not as fun or as easy to love you as it is right now? I actually think there's something incredibly deep and profound about reciting vows that are the exact same words your parents recited to each other and the same words your grandparents and your great-grandparents committed to one another. Because you understand that in that moment, this blessed union of souls that God has ordained in Christian marriage is not simply about the feelings that we have towards one action of the faithfulness of Christ to his church that I am choosing to love you, choosing to spend my life with you, choosing to commit to you, even if everything falls apart, even when it's hard. So I'm not totally opposed to personal vows. I, I make people do these ones, and if they want to do personal ones as well, they're just usually super cheesy and cliche, <laughs> if I'm honest. And I think we need to pay attention to what those forces are culturally that would cause us to be skeptical of those things that have been handed down to us from the past. And so in the same way, I actually think there's a tendency amongst Christians today to be skeptical about something like reciting the Apostles' Creed or about praying a prayer together, speaking out loud uh, or praying out loud, confessing out loud in church. And by the way, some of you have expressed as we've made this change toward more liturgical elements, prayers of confession and all that kind of stuff, that it's just kind of weird. Like it feels strange to stand up and to say something together. And my question is, well, why is it different than singing together? Singing's like talking just louder and longer, right? To quote Buddy the Elf, right? <laughs> um, we could just say, hey, now we're going to have singing time, so everybody just start singing. Whatever song, however you want to sing, you just go for it. I, there are traditions that do that, and it, maybe it's beautiful in its own way. I'm grateful we actually have well-written songs and people that have thought through them and are leading us in them so that with one voice, one heart, one mind, we can come to worship and adore God. And the creeds, the prayers, the confessions are really that same kind of thing, except we just speak them together. 
And we're being formed by the words that we say, letting them soak into our hearts and into our minds. And so there's that, again, that skepticism that if something's true, it really needs to be something I made up myself. And I'll be the first to say, most of my words are not that inspired. Most of the things I say throughout the week are fleeting and completely unimportant and not going to make a lot of difference in the world. But the reality is that in reciting the creed, in memorizing the creed, in letting the creed become our lens for interpreting the scripture and interpreting the world, we're actually grounding ourselves in words that are true. I remember at some point in my Baptist upbringing, um, hearing that no book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. There was skepticism from a religious perspective that if we gave our attention to things like creeds and prayers and that sort of thing, that we were actually putting those things above the scriptures when really we should just be devoted to the Bible and to God himself. And so I heard that several times. No book but the Bible, no creed but Christ. Um, The first thing I'd say is that that phrase in and of itself is a creed. (laughs) It is not in the Bible. It's something a man made up as a way of explaining or interpreting the essentials or the importance of the Christian faith. So um, it's not that some of us are creedal Christians and some aren't. It's that some of us are going to affirm and adopt the historic Christian creeds while the rest of us are going to make our own up. So there's no such thing as a creedless Christian. Uh, either we fall in with the faith we've received that's been wrestled with and struggled with throughout generations and around the world, or we defer to me, my own experience, my own perspective as ultimate truth, and somehow think that that's the most accurate way of understanding the world. And so when we join ourselves to the creed, we locate ourselves as part of a community that transcends our feelings and experiences. When couples recite these traditional historic wedding vows, they're going beyond what I'm feeling in the moment or what my experience has been, but rooting ourselves in historic truth that reflects the glory of the gospel. So the word creed comes from the Latin term credo, which simply means I believe. A creed is a confession of belief. And that is actually somewhat countercultural for us as well. Even the language of faith, belief, trust is something we're less and less comfortable with within our highly individualistic and experiential society. I have a feeling that if we today were to rewrite the creed, instead of using the phrase, I believe, we would be tempted to say something like, I think, or I feel or based on my personal experience. But the reality is that the biblical vocabulary of faith has to do with belief. It has to do with trusting. It has to do, like marriage, with a commitment to someone and to something that we don't know exactly how it's going to go. But what we have in the creed is an outline 
of the presence of the Father, Son, and Spirit in the world and in our lives and in our midst as the church. And in him, in God himself, we have the one thing that can never be taken from us. We are rooting our identity, our faith, and our spirituality in the person of God, in the presence of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in not in the hopes of anything else, but that no matter what happens, God has given himself to us and he's with us. So back to the question of who is the I in I believe? Well, on one hand, it's each of us individually. And if I believe and you believe and you believe and you believe, then collectively, we believe. And I think there's something to that. But I actually think that the apostles took seriously the identity that Jesus had given them to be the body of Christ. To be the physical representation of Jesus in the world. And in that sense, I'm not the body of Christ. You are not the body of Christ. But we together are the body of Christ in which his spirit inhabits and empowers. And so the I, I think, is actually best understood not just as me personally, but I as joining our voice to Christ's one body. Christ's body proclaiming that I believe. This body that's stretched out across the globe and throughout time. And so the truest and most important words we can ever say are not individual words, but communal words. And when we proclaim this creed together, that we are are attaching ourselves to something much bigger than us, that runs much deeper. This thing has been going for thousands of years. And it's not fleeting, it's not failing. And the gates of hell will not overcome We are the body of Christ. And so in that sense, part of this new season for us as a church is to not focus so much on what makes Antioch different from all the other churches. We're calling our attention to what is it that brings us all together. When you're first planting a church, you kind of need a story to tell to say, here's why our church is needed in the city because there's no other churches like this. And I think that's legitimate and authentic. I think in the last 12 years, God has grown up a body in Antioch that no longer needs to be defined by what we're against or what we're not, but actually is receiving its identity as being part of God's global and historic church. And so as we confess this creed, It unites, it reconciles, it brings together a church that's got a sketchy past, as we know, and takes those things that ought to be one and makes it so. So it connects us to other churches in the city that have different denominations, different traditions, different vocabularies. It takes the essential truths of of the gospel and brings oneness. It connects us to the greater body of Christ around the world, including traditions that look so different from ours that we hardly even recognize them as Christianity, but today we can proclaim with one voice this this truth. And it also connects us to the saints that have gone before us, like saying the marriage vows that my parents, grandparents, great-grandparents have said, 
to live into this creed as something that isn't the latest greatest, that isn't trendy, that isn't cool, that isn't a fad, but has gone from generations and generations down to us. You'll notice that in a lot of old country churches especially, some here in the United States, but especially if you've traveled to the old world in Europe, that in order to get to the front door of the place of worship, you have to walk through the graveyard. Now to us, that sounds a little crazy, right? Like who wants to walk through a cemetery to go to church? But there's something really beautiful about that, isn't there? That it's us reminding the company of, being reminded of the company of saints that are cheering us on, of those fathers and mothers in the faith that have gone before us, whose lives and legacies endure, and though their body is in the ground, they are present with Christ. We're a culture that's afraid of death, but if the gospel's true, then we're actually not afraid at all. We understand it's the best thing that can happen to us. And so this creed unites us to a bigger and more historical, more rooted uh, and deeper faith. And so throughout the course of this series, we'll close each sermon with an invitation to come to the table, and the band will then lead us in a response, a time of worship. And uh, it's a time to worship through giving in the buckets or the uh, boxes, um, to receiving the Lord's table, the bread and the cup, if you'd like, and also to singing and praying um, together as a church. We'll recite this creed each week at the beginning of the worship set. And the final thing I want to say before we invite you to do that is to be incredibly clear on this, that reciting something like the Apostles' Creed or doing all the other liturgical practices that we're inviting you to experiment with, these are not things we do in order to earn the grace of God. These are not tricks we're turning so that God will be happy with us. This is not our attempt to work our way up to a better standing with him or something like that. It is the exact opposite. The creed is a gift. It is an expression of God's grace. It's something that just like baptism and just like communion, it's something we receive It's not something we do for God, but it's actually something God has done for us. And so we proclaim it with joy, with adoration, with gratitude within our hearts. We proclaim it knowing that even if there's parts of it that we're struggling with or that we don't understand, that there's a bigger body, there's a bigger I that we're part of. And ultimately, this creed is a means to an end, not an end of itself. It's a gift that God's given the church to draw our hearts to the person of Jesus, to the presence of his spirit, so that we can grow in his grace and be sent out into the world. So, will you stand and pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for the life that you've given us in your son, for this incredible gift and legacy of your church. And though uh, she is far from perfect, we recognize that there is nowhere else to be your people. And so I'm grateful for this expression at Antioch, thankful for the evidences of your grace that we've experienced 
uh, over these last six months of transition. Thank you for the way, Jesus, that you are discipling us. Thank you for your presence, God. Thank you for the power of your spirit to help us walk closely with you and love you and love the world that you've made. We pray for this fall as we begin a journey together with celebration this morning, that you would set apart this time to work deeply in our hearts. Not just, not just about our thinking or our feeling, but actually doing the deep work of forming the image of Jesus more fully in each of us. Helping us come to see who you are and who we are in you and what you've called us to be and to do to one another and in the world. Lord Jesus, we are utterly dependent upon you. We need your presence and your power, and so we are grateful for the end of that great commission that you are with us always to the very end of the age. You are everything to us. You are enough. We love you. We trust you. We respond and worship and joy. In Jesus' name.